This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. are in fact delighted here at CIS to have Robert with us. Um, so tell you a little bit, um, uh, Bob, about CIS. <clears throat> we have graduate programs that teach um, psychotherapy. We have anthropologists in the room. We have fine arts folks in the room and, and a smattering of philosophers and, and uh, students of religion. So the first thing <clears throat> that I thought perhaps um, you could share with us, talk a little bit about is you talk about the big question um, is happiness the point? Is is um, the meaning of life and is happiness the point? But specifically, um, where I wanted to go with that was in your book. It says natural selection doesn't want us to be happy after all. It just wants us to be productive. I wonder if you could unpack that and share some of your ideas about that with us. Sure. Um, and thanks everybody for coming. Um, and thanks thanks to the institute for having me. Um, so yeah, I mean this is uh, I mean this book is in a certain sense a sequel to my book on evolutionary psychology, The Moral Animal. And uh, one thing I realized in the course of researching and writing um, that book is that, you know, natural selection did not design us to be happy. Um, and another thing I discovered is that natural selection did not design us to necessarily see the world clearly. Um, because after all, natural selection, it, the bottom line is just genetic proliferation. I mean, the, the basic theory of natural selection says that uh, traits that help genes get into the next generation, if they are genetically based traits, will flourish and become part of a species. And it's, and it's that simple. That is, that is the entire bottom line. So if there are traits, genetically based traits, that lead to suffering or unhappiness, but they help get genes into the next generation, then they will flourish. And if there are traits that lead to uh, a, an unclear perception of the world or even out-and-out out illusion, those traits can flourish through natural selection as well. And so I became convinced that both of these things were features of uh, the human mind, that, that we delude ourselves about various things by nature, including ourselves. We, we delude ourselves about ourselves. We delude ourselves about other people and other things. Um, and we are often not happy. Now, those of you who are conversant in Buddhism may, may, may recognize a couple of themes here, right? Like not seeing the world clearly, even being prone to out-and-out out illusion, and suffering. And, of course, Buddhism posits a connection between the two. Uh, the kind of one of the core ideas is that the reason we suffer is because we don't see the world clearly, because we are prone to illusions, and that, that's also the reason we make other people suffer. The reason we behave badly toward other people, according to Buddhism, also is grounded in not seeing things um, clearly. So there's an obvious kind of correspondence between what I gathered from evolutionary psychology about the mind um, and, and Buddhism and 
over the years, I became convinced that uh, the correspondence was worth writing about. That that uh, that you know, the more I learned about Buddhism, the more I came to feel that the fundamental diagnosis of the human predicament is correct, and that the Buddhist prescription has a lot to be said for it. Uh, I, I came to, be, to, to believe that after actually getting into meditation, which was, you know, sometime after writing The Moral Animal. Um, and so, you know, here we are. Do you, do you want me to elaborate on, 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 on the senses in which we're not designed to be happy or... Um, yeah, that would be... That I mean, the, the, the most obvious one, the most obvious example of our not being designed by natural selection to be enduringly happy, and whenever I say designed, I mean that kind of in quotes. I mean, natural selection is not a conscious process, but still it creates organisms that look as if they were designed to, to do certain things and, and ultimately to get genes into the next generation. Um, and the most obvious example of how our enduring happiness was not high on natural selection's agenda is just the fact that gratification does tend to evaporate. You know, you, you, you're hungry, you eat some food, it feels good for a while, then you want more, you have sex, feels good, then you want more, you, you buy something that you lusted after, feels good for a while, then you want more, you get some promotion you've been longing for, feels good for a while, and so on. And this, of course, is, is a, a theme in Buddhism. I mean, in, in, in Buddhism, this idea, you, you're, you're continually kind of thinking in a certain sense, kind of, kind of imagining that the gratification is going to last for longer than it does, is in Buddhism, you know, called just a failure to appreciate the impermanence of things. And, of course, Buddhism means that broadly, the impermanence of everything. But certainly the impermanence of gratification is, is a big part of the, the Buddhist diagnosis. And it's, it's kind of just commonsensically obvious why natural selection would not design organisms that stay contented forever. Because if it did, they would never do anything, right? I mean, they would have one meal... And then they would just go, okay, I'm done. And then they would, of course, die. Or they would have sex once and bask in the afterglow. And, uh, that's, and, they, and their genes would not make it into the next generation because there's a bunch of people busy having lots of sex, and that's who they're competing with, right? So this is just straightforward theory of natural selection. Um, I mean, there's no way of... We, we, we haven't proved that the... Uh, that, that the fleetingness of gratification, its tendency to evaporate, is a product of natural selection, but it certainly stands to reason and is plausible. So that's, that's just one example, so I'll stop there. It's not the, not the only example by any means of how I think our suffering is best understood in light of evolutionary psychology. I think anxiety, remorse, all kinds of things are, are best understood that way, and, and they, that also kind of plugs into Buddhism, but I'll stop yeah. there. So one of the things that students here study is the whole notion that because of all the tension and anxiety and suffering, um, <clears throat> dopamine gets released because our brains have a reward system and they have what's called reward deficiency syndrome. And so we naturally seek ways to increase um, the dopamine rush so that we get that sense that you're talking about. And it seems to me like those two things are pretty interrelated, that, that this notion of suffering um, and our own internal feeling of uh, being really at distress with suffering and wanting to do something about that. Yeah, I mean, the presumption is that these biochemical systems that we now know more and more about that govern 
uh, pleasure and the and and the uh, vanishing of pleasure um, and the longing uh, for pleasure um, that these were designed by natural selection uh, to govern our behavior um, and you know one thing that has happened is that uh, you know modern life you know changes things in lots of ways that complicate things and one of them is the ability to directly intervene in the biochemical system with drugs. Now sometimes that's good if they're effectively therapeutic and, and they're not addictive in a destructive way, but um, you know, if you imagine life for our species 15,000 years ago, like before the invention of agriculture, it wasn't that easy to get pleasure. You know, you had to, you know, you, 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 you had to like uh, go out and find food, and there was no kind of refined sugar that would give you an immediate rush even there. You had to, you know, earn the esteem of people. That would make you feel good. Do something that impressed people. We all know how hard that is, right? Um, but that would make you feel good. Uh, sex would make you feel good, but you got to find somebody to, you know, you can't just do that on command. So, so you had to kind of work for your pleasure, and now we have things ranging from drugs to online pornography that uh, allow you to activate the reinforcing chemicals um, without the work, so to speak. And that's, by and large, what leads to addiction. Um, so there's really kind of two basic kinds of problems with being human. I mean, there's a lot, but this, is, this, covers, <laughs> this, covers, this covers a certain amount of it, what I'm about to say. First thing is that, again, natural selection does not design animals to be happy in the first place in the environment that they were designed for. And then the second problem is we're not even in the environment we were designed for and in, in a number of ways that makes things actually uh, worse or at least more complicated. So, you know, a good example is like anxiety. The, the average evolutionary psychologist would say anxiety is natural, you know, it's natural that, uh, you know, if, if your toddler wanders off and you realize you haven't seen him in a few minutes, you'd, you'd kind of, uh, freak out and go, oh, something horrible has happened and worry about it until you, you, you find them. Uh, and, and that's just, you know, an animal working as designed, so to speak, to be afflicted by this fear because it's motivating and even to have a kind of illusion that something horrible has happened to the child, even though that usually turns out to not be the case, it's still motivating. So that's all natural. But then you move us into an, a, a modern environment and there's just these new ways to activate that anxiety. It's like, Dropping off a kid at a daycare center for the first day when you don't know anyone who's going to be taking care of the child, that's not natural. That's not something you find in a hunter-gatherer society. Um, or even what we're doing now, public speaking, okay? It's, it's, a lot of people have serious public speaking anxieties, and, and I'm not entirely with, without certain, certain variants of them. Um, and that's not surprising because, uh, you know, on the one hand, we do seem to be designed to have anxieties about what people think of us. That makes sense because according to evolutionary theory, it mattered what people think of us during evolution in terms of, of getting genes in the next generation. But what wasn't part of the environment of our evolution was suddenly facing a bunch of people you've never met, um, you know, and a very large number of them. That's like a new, a new thing. And, and a lot of the, the anxieties we see today are, are this kind of thing, things we weren't really designed for. So anyway, those two categories of like the problem with being human are 
Natural selection doesn't care about us to begin with. <laughs> and then you put us in a, in a strange environment and things get even weirder. Thank you. So <clears throat> I wanted to talk a little bit about one of my favorite parts of the book. You, you quote a poem from one of the ancient sutras that says, Now know all dreams to be like this, a mirage, a cloud castle, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. And you mentioned that the two words that often get used are formlessness and emptiness. And so those are two words that um, everybody has a different idea about. And then my favorite sentence in the book, if you ponder these two words, which we Buddhists do a lot, two other words may come to mind, crazy and depressing. <laughs> right. I mean, it sounds, emptiness is arguably a bad choice of words because it does sound like something you wouldn't want to experience. And there's, you know... Um, Whereas if you talk to like really adept meditators uh, who, who say that actually the, the apprehension of emptiness has become part of their everyday lives, <clears throat> they describe it as nice. And I've had kind of glimpses of it on retreat, and, and I think I know what they're talking about, and, and it, is, it is nice. Um, and, and I'm glad you asked me about that because one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is, and by the way, I'm... I'm you know, the title of the book... That's where we're going to go next. That's where we're going to go, go next? Yeah. I'll save this. Thing. Okay. <laughs> but I will say... I will, I'll save my apology for the title of the book. Um, I will say one thing I'm trying to do is convey that even if you're doing what a lot of people do now, which is like use mindfulness meditation as a basically therapeutic thing to solve a specific problem like uh, anxiety, um, I think you're closer than you may realize to an exploration of kind of deep Buddhist philosophical principles. I think there's a kind of a, an organic connection between just starting to meditate, calming your mind, and dealing with a specific issue, and the very depths of Buddhist philosophy, including ideas like not-self and emptiness, okay? Uh, and and that's one of the main things I'm trying to do in the, in the book is is establish that that grounding in an accessible way for people who who are interested in meditation but aren't aren't kind of up on the Buddhism now. As for emptiness, there are different interpretations of emptiness even you know within Buddhist history. I mean the the extreme what seems extreme to me, the extreme interpretation is a kind of what Western philosophers call idealism, the idea that everything you see out there is just not real, like in the movie The Matrix. Um, uh, the other, I think, main interpretation, and I think more mainstream interpretation of the concept of emptiness, is that, one way to put it, is that things don't have essence. We perceive them as having essence, but they don't have essence. Now, here's an experience I had on my first retreat that I think illustrates that concept. I think I had a brush with emptiness, but maybe I'm wrong and people can correct me. There are probably people who know more, more about the actual apprehension of emptiness here than I do. But I was taking a walk in the woods and I came upon a weed that was very familiar to me. It's called the plantain weed. And it had infested my yard for some time. I had tried to kill it, you know. I'd spent a lot of time pulling it up and so on. And just all of a sudden, this is like day five in the retreat or something, so I'm, I'm in a pretty different place psychologically than I normally am. And I just, 
I couldn't understand why I'd ever tried to kill this thing. I mean, it just, it seemed as beautiful as all the other forms of plant life. <laughs> and, and now here you were in its territory. And now, and, you know, that's the other thing is, is, I mean, weed territory, better be nice to it. No, it actually wasn't that pragmatic. It, it, was, it was really, and I want to emphasize how deeply perceptual it was. I mean, it's one thing to just acknowledge that, look, weed is a human-imposed impo category. That's obvious, right? There's no, you can't come up with some kind of rigorous definition of what a weed is, right? You won't find a dictionary that does such a clean job of delineating weed from non-weed that you could just look at any plant and say which one it is. No, it is a, the category of weed is something we invented and we impose that on plant life. But, but what I was experiencing was, was more than a recognition of that fact. It was a perceptual shift it was like uh, seeing a weed felt differently to me. And I was not perceiving essence of weed. Okay? And I think that is, I think that's what emptiness is. And this is based on conversations I have, and I, I include in the book, with a number of people who have done a ton of meditating and talk about emptiness from a, a more reliable vantage point than mine, but the idea that, that they get back to is that things don't project their, in, their identities as independently to you. I mean, you still know what a lamp is and what a wall is, and, but, but, but you don't get such a distinct vibe from things. And, and the other thing they tend to say is that it's a nice experience. It's like things generally have positive vibes. And the, that was the experience I was having. It was like a weed was beautiful. All the plants were beautiful now. And so... I, I think um, I think that's emptiness, and, I, and, and I, at least it, it's the. It, it, I, I think that is the beginning of an apprehension of one of the the main interpretations of the concept of emptiness. And I think that kind of thing is a lot more accessible to uh, meditators than they may realize. So. Um for those of you that happened to see the New York Times last Sunday, you know that um, Bob's book is on the New York Times bestsellers list, which is pretty phenomenal for, for a book of this type. Um, but about that title, when I saw the title on that list and when I got your book, I was wondering if the second book in your series might be Why Buddhism is Not True, and the third one, Why Buddhism is Neither True Nor False, <laughs> and then finish, finish it up with the last one being Why Buddhism is Both True and False. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that those last couple are, some people would argue that those are more consistent with Buddhist philosophy than the title I chose. Uh, that's one issue with the title, is, is uh, depending on which ancient Buddhist philosopher you read, you might say that you have no business using the word uh, true at all. That's a relatively arcane objection to the title. Most of the objections I've gotten are, are much more concrete. Uh, like, like it's obnoxious, <laughs> and uh, uh, and I know what they mean. Um, I mean, it is. But uh, I mean, when I before the book came out, what I was saying to my friends in publishing was, the title may be a bit hyperbolic, but I don't think it exceeds industry standards, <laughs> and uh, and that's certainly true. I mean, I am here to insist that this title is more defensible than the title Consciousness Explained, for example. Uh, but, um, but actually, honestly, I'm willing to defend it, as long as we're clear on, uh, on, on what I'm, I'm saying. Um, 
And first of all, I mean, I think you can defend even within Buddhist tradition. You can find serious Buddhist thinkers who use the word true and, and so on. But, uh, but, but that aside, um, you know, I'm saying, first of all, this, the, the Buddhist uh, prescription and diagnosis are basically on target. We do suffer because we don't see the world clearly. That's also why we make other people suffer. Um, but beyond that, as I just suggested, I mean, I, 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 am, I am defending the, the roots of that claim. In other words, I'm defending what most people would find some crazy-sounding ideas, like emptiness. Um, uh, that, that sounds like radical to people, I mean, or at least, or, or at best incomprehensible. If you say things have no inherent existence or however, whatever way you want to put the thing, um, uh, you know, they, they think that's crazy. And then, of course, not self. That sounds crazy. If you say it means that the self doesn't exist, most people go like, what are you talking about? And um, I have to admit that not self is, uh, I may, maybe wrestle with that a little more inconclusively than emptiness. I mean, with emptiness, I have, uh, if we have a lot of time, I can get into what my argument on behalf of the validity of emptiness is. Um, and, but, and it's straightforward, and I stand by it. I'm, I'm arguing that there's, there's a, a particular way to think of, of, of emptiness that, in my view, vindicates it. Um, not self is a little more complicated. It's... Uh, it's harder to, you know, it, it means different things, but, but certainly uh, a lot of the things it means, and also it has, well, emptiness has the same thing, both a metaphysical and a moral dimension, but with not, not self, this is more straightforward. There's the metaphysical claim that the, not, the self doesn't exist, and then there's the moral implication of that fact, that once you realize that, that you are selfless in that sense, you will be selfless, you know, in the, in the moral sense. So, so there's this, and, and this is an interesting thing about Buddhism to begin with, is, the, is again, this idea that apprehending the metaphysical truth, and I'm using metaphysical in, the, in a sense that Western philosophers would respect, okay? There's also other senses that I, that I don't mean, but, um, but uh, th there's this interesting claim in Buddhism that seeing the metaphysical truth, you know, is almost tantamount to seeing the moral truth. And, and tends to lead to good behavior, although we all know of expert meditators who have not been great people. I'm not saying that it's, it's inevitable that if you become like a good meditator, you'll become a great person, but there is this claim uh, in, in, there are these two facets to both of these ideas, I think, with, with emptiness and with not self. And uh, I certainly defend emphatically the moral, the moral implications of those two apprehensions in the book. Um, and I defend the, the metaphysical dimension, although, again, with not-self, it's, it's a little trickier, but, but it's certainly the case that, you know, one thing not-self means is that this idea that your conscious self is the CEO, right? This thing, you know, you feel is being you, it's thinking the thoughts, it's making the decisions, it's kind of the origin of all the intentionality. One common sense of the meaning of not-self is that that's wrong. And that is something that modern psychology... I mean, let alone evolutionary psychology, modern psychology has for some decades now been suggesting that that's wrong, that your conscious self is not as in charge as you think it is. Um, now, evolutionary psychology provides an explanation of why that might be, why natural selection would design us to be under the illusion that we are more in control than we are. Um, but anyway, I just want to say I... Um, I, I 
I argue that Buddhism is true, so, you know, it's like, seems like, in that sense, a fair title. I mean, I may be wrong, but, but what the book is about is my, my ideas about why, uh, why Buddhism's fundamental claims are correct. One of the things that people have said about the book, and um, uh, including Adam Gopnik in The New Yorker, um, seems to imply that, that you're right on about meditation and mindfulness practices, um, but that he had some questions sort of about um, the Buddhism as a religion or a spiritual practice. Um, and so maybe you can enlighten us all so we can skip a class. Um, is Buddhism a religion? Well, um I'm afraid what I can say about that review is constrained <laughs> by my adherence to the principle of right speech. Right. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. We won't tell anyone. That's. That, uh, uh, no, I mean I. I uh, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm restraining myself from, <laughs> from, from the various grievances and complaints I have about that. I mean, he said some nice things. In fact, there was this one. There was this one line. There was this one line, what was it? Uh, a sublime achievement. And I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even understand what he was meant. I, I wasn't sure it wasn't a joke, but that didn't stop my publisher, of course, from pulling it out and using it as a blurb. Anyway, I hope, if he meant it, great, but I don't understand how he could have. Um, anyway, I digress. The question is about, well, he's complaining I leave the religious part out. Well, yeah, I do. So I, I plead guilty. I say at the beginning of the book, there's a little note to readers. Uh, I'm aware that the title may, may cause adverse reactions. And so I, I tried, I have a little note to readers at the beginning saying, this is, you know, what I mean by, by true. And one thing I say is I'm not talking about the, whether you want to call them supernatural or more exotically metaphysical things like reincarnation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the part of Buddhism that um, you could call naturalistic. Uh, I'm, I'm ambivalent about the word secular uh, because it, it suggests that it's in no sense spiritual. You hear, you know, secular Buddhism. I, I, I don't know. I think you can make the case that even a, a kind of naturalistic version of Buddhism, as you tend to see in the West, um, could be called spiritual. But, but it, there's no doubt that... that uh, you know, as I say in the book, Westerners have some real misconceptions about how Buddhism is practiced in Asia. I mean, a lot of Westerners think that Buddhism, Buddhists are these people who meditate and don't believe in God. Well, the average Asian Buddhist, that's more or less the opposite of the truth. I mean, the, the average lay, lay Buddhist in Asia does not meditate. They don't believe in a single creator God, but they believe in deities and so on, and they, you know, and they... Uh, believe that good conduct will make a favorable rebirth more likely. So as in Western religion, there's a connection between how you behave here and your hopes for the afterlife and so on. So it's very, very much a religion. Uh, but, but I'm, I'm uh, focusing on, you know, what some people call Western Buddhism. Uh, so that's, that's true. I, I, I mean, there is this category of review that authors complain about where the reviewer says, I wouldn't have written a book about this. And, you know, okay, <laughs> I did. Uh, it, it's, it's not, this is not about the religious part of Buddhism. Check out the New York Times list. Maybe, uh, maybe they'll write one later. If you think I'm the kind of person who would fantasize gleefully about <laughs> him seeing my, my book on the New York Times bestseller list, you're getting me mixed up with, uh, <laughs> well, 
somebody. Yeah. Great. Now, now, actually, now that you mentioned it, I may do a little of that. But I had, I had, not, I actually had not done that. I actually, I'm, I, I'll I had send not. it to him tomorrow yeah. for you. Yeah. So, one of the questions that comes up, um, um, and I was looking back at your um, 2009 uh, Pulitzer Prize final book, um, The Evolution of God, and. And in that book and in this one, there's the, um, the whole question of trying to have a spiritual practice or a mindfulness practice and to take a look at it in this era of science where everybody wants to evaluate everything and collect the data on everything. And, you know, in my branch of Buddhism and Soto Zen, we, it's just that we are. It's that, that is the key practice. And so I'm wondering how, as a scientist who came um, to meditation and then came to um, these, these, um, these, this writing and this research, I wonder how we, how we think about that. If, it's, if we're looking at Buddhism from the standpoint of being scientists, it's like, what are we measuring? If we don't practice with a gaining mind... Um, so how does how does one measure um, insight or or? Yeah, awakening? I mean, you know, one thing I don't do in this book is cite a lot of studies that that say that, you know, eight weeks of meditation makes people three percent less stressed out or anything like that. There's a lot of studies like that out there. Um, I, I'm I'm not um, I don't get into that much. Um, but 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 at, at that level the problem of measurement is uh is in principle soluble i mean i'm a little more interested i guess in uh, you know I, I mean the interest the question of whether meditation will make you happier is an interesting and valid question i'm a little more interested in the question of whether you should consider what happiness you get from meditation valid happiness and um and by that i mean is it giving you a truer apprehension of the world is it making you a better person so that's more um the lines along which uh, I, I argue in the book. There's a kind of related question about science and meditation, which is uh, the role of introspective data, right? Now, and, and I think one reason that, you know, 2,500 years after the birth of Buddhism, psychology is, in my view, vindicating some Buddhist ideas about uh, psychology is that uh, beginning long ago, there was some very expert introspection done in the Buddhist lineage um, of a kind that can only be done when you get your mind really, really calm. And, and as it gets calmer, and you notice the parts that aren't calm. Um, so I personally think that, uh, that, that Buddhism's prescience about a lot of things some of which psych modern psychology is only now really grasping, including, for example, how finely intertwined affect and cognition is, you know, how finely intertwined feelings and thoughts are and things like that. I think one reason um, Buddhism was ahead of the game on this is because introspection can be illuminating. Uh, it's not data, strictly speaking, because data to be data, strictly speaking, has to be publicly observable. But I think... Uh, it's um, it, it's something that, that merits respect. The Buddha said, I came to teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. And one of the things in your book that, that I found interesting is a statement that says, sometimes understanding the ultimate source of your suffering doesn't by itself help very much. Right. So, yeah, I mean, this was the sense I had after I wrote my book on evolutionary psychology was I was more acutely aware than ever 
of the absurdity of being human. I, I mean, in, including things like, you know, like rage, you know. It's like rage to an evolutionary psychologist, it was engineered into the brain as this functional thing. If you watch it at work in a hunter-gatherer society, um, you know, people who feel they're not getting respect, like if you try to steal something from them or steal their mate or whatever, or just don't show them respect, you get enraged and you show you're ready to fight and you may have a fight and even if you get hurt, you've still very importantly demonstrated to people that they cannot take advantage of you uh, without paying a price. That's the, you know, uh, plausible at least explanation for why rage seems to be part of human, human nature, a kind of moralistic rage when you feel you've been wronged. And then you look at it as it plays out in a modern environment. I mean, road rage being the obviously most absurd case, right? It's like nobody who's watching this is ever going to see you again. There's no point in putting on a big display for them. Uh, and, 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 and not to mention the fact that you're in a much more dangerous arena than you are when you're having a fist fight. Uh, so, you know, the more I, the, that book included a lot about subtle biases, in, especially in, in our evaluation of other people and our evaluation of ourselves. Um, and it just left me feeling, if anything, more uncomfortable than ever because I was aware of all this stuff, but I didn't have anything to do about it. And one thing I like about Buddhism is there isn't just a diagnosis, there's a prescription. And uh, meditation um, is part of the prescription, and I'm a big champion of it. I'm not going to claim that I'm a, like a great meditator. In fact, uh, I am by nature such a bad meditator that I never got much of anything out of it until I actually went on a retreat. I had to go to a silent meditation retreat to just see that there was anything to it at all. Now, happily, most people are not in that position. I think most people can see some of the fruits of meditation without, uh, without spending a week in silence. But, um, but I, I uh, you know, I'm a believer, and it's, it's not easy to uh, be disciplined enough in your practice for it to have a, a really significant impact on your, on your daily perceptions and feelings. Um, but... Uh, that, that was the difference. I mean, the way I put it sometimes is that, you know, with evolutionary psychology, I had found, I felt I'd found the truth, but not the way. Uh, but Buddhism offers a way. Great, thanks. So one of the things, we train a lot of psychotherapists here, and um, there are a lot of psychotherapists in the room, and everybody else needs a psychotherapist, so it's a good match. Um, <laughs> But one of the things that we train is the presence of the therapist to really, we keep saying, trust your gut, trust your intuition. And one of the sentences um, that, that I really liked in your book is, um, one, in fact, one of the big lessons from Buddhism is to be suspicious of the intuition that your ordinary way of perceiving the world uh, brings you to the truth about it. So to really be suspicious of that. So should we stop teaching people to trust their intuition? Uh, no. Um, I mean, I mean, I, there are certainly people who have good intuitions about certain kinds of things, I think, and there is, is such a thing as a trained mind that's good at um, picking things up. Not only, you know, and moreover, many of our intuitions are solid. Uh, to, to say that suspicion of them is warranted isn't to say that they're all wrong. I mean, if you, you know, the perceptual apparatus that leads us to walk around without bumping into walls, without falling off of cliffs, that stuff is, is pretty reliable. Although even in there, even there in that in in that very kind of pedestrian realm of just perceiving the three-dimensional world, you can see that natural selection uh, 
does not always favor accuracy. So, so, for example, people tend to overestimate the speed at which objects are approaching them. Now, we don't know for sure that that's built in by natural selection, but it kind of makes sense that if it's a charging beast or somebody running at you with a spear or whatever, uh, it's better to be safe than sorry. You're better off overestimating the speed of approach than underestimating it. So even in that realm of everyday perception, um, you know, there are biases in favor of what is objectively speaking error if it can get help genes get into the next generation. I mean, not to mention the fact that, that you know, we have to construct a three-dimensional apprehension of the world based on actual, you know, two-dimensional arrays of data impinging on the eye and, and all that. I mean, perception is a very constructive process in all kinds of ways, ranging from that to what I said about emptiness, where we tend to project, you know, essences onto things for, for the purposes of putting them into categories. Um, and so on, but but look, there there are, there are people have, who have, by and large, sound intuitions about things. I don't mean to deny that. So, in the in the back part of your book, you talk about um, in a chapter called "Clarity Begins at Home," um, why you yourself continue to meditate. And the sentence that you used that that I really thought was interesting was, um, "If in fact I'm not getting any closer to enlightenment." Um, what, and, uh, not, not guaranteed or not getting any closer to um, being enlightened. Um, and so then you talk about the five reasons or whatever that, that you meditate. So I wonder if you could share some of that with us about um, how, how in your evolution as a mindfulness or a meditator, um, you continue to motivate yourself knowing what you know um, from a mindfulness perspective and from a science perspective. Okay, well, one thing I do there in that part of the book is I think, uh, concede that I will never be enlightened in the pure, strict sense of the term. And in fact, I'm agnostic on the question of whether enlightenment in the strictest sense of the term is, is a realizable goal and whether there are any enlightened people. Uh, at the same time, I, I find it a useful idea to kind of imagine what enlightenment in the strictest Buddhist sense would be like if only to imagine, like, um, think of yourself as moving towards something incrementally. Uh, and, and that, I think, is very useful. I mean, I said earlier that I, I, I think uh, it's important to, or at least I am of the view that, uh, relatively modest meditative achievements that are fundamentally therapeutic are actually connected to deep Buddhist ideas and another way to say that is that they are incremental approaches to enlightenment in the, in the strict sense. And I think, I mean, you, one, one thing that I guess illustrates both. I mean, you take something like uh, anxiety. If you, um, and again, I mean, evolutionary psychology provides a lot of reasons to confirm the basic Buddhist idea that our feelings are best treated with a certain suspicion. We shouldn't automatically follow their guidance. Well, so suppose through meditation you get like a perspective on anxiety that's a little different than the normal perspective, which is uh, make it go away, you know, and kind of being in its thrall and, and having the, the, uh, the specific, envisioning the specific horrible scenarios anxiety is encouraging you to have and so on. Suppose you get a little distance from it. And I know there are language issues here because... 
the way you get distance on feelings in a certain sense is to get closer to them and not run away from them and you experience them more fully, but that can give you a kind of critical distance on them and in a certain sense give you the option of not considering them part of yourself and, and not identifying with them. And, and I would say that that is, you can think of that as incremental progress toward the idea of not-self. And, and I think, uh, in fact, if you talk to people who have, again, very adept meditators, uh, the path that some of them describe is very much like that, 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 that they become, you know, non-attached to specific things and then more specific things and then not just feelings but thoughts and then this, you know, I mean, some people will say it was just a sudden apprehension, not self, but others will say, yeah, there was this incremental path. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, back to the question of why, what, what keeps me motivated to meditate, one thing is this idea that uh, enlightenment, um, you know, is something you can have more of or less of. It, it isn't just something, it's not binary, either you either you attain nirvana or you remain forever shrouded in delusion, you can, you know, get increments of enlightenment or to take emptiness. It's like if you even get better at being in a checkout line and seeing someone who's like fumbling with their credit card and taking a long time and you're in a hurry, if you just get better at not seeing essence of jerk in that person... That is a little bit of emptiness, and I really mean that. I think it is. I mean, I, I mean, um, and and so that, that that's you know there there you can put all this more prosaically. Just say you know I meditate because I'm a little less stressed out. I'm a little less judgmental. I'm you know I'm happier. My wife says I'm not as hard to live with, um, but I, I also think you can describe it. You can connect it to Buddhist philosophy and, and even connect it to the concept of enlightenment. Hmm. So um, at one point in the book, you, um, you quote a foreigner song, um, and I thought it was an interesting part because you you you're talking about what um, the, in meditation and when you have those little moments of enlightenment that can show and, and like, wow. And the lines of the song, for those that haven't gotten to that part of the book yet, feels like the very first time, like it never did before. Um, and I was starting to feel all warm and glowing. And then a page later, you say, there's another line in that song that says, feels like the very first time, like it never will again. Right. And so I'm wondering about how as, as you experience those brief moments, the, um, uh, those increments, um, how, you know, if we're teaching other people a mindfulness practice or to meditate, how do we keep people um, enthused that, in fact, um, uh, that first time that that happens might be the prime experience. Yeah. Now, how many of you know the Foreigner song feels like the first time? How many of you like it? Yeah. Okay. Got one over there. <laughs> Two, three. three. Yeah. Okay. I'm not a big fan. And the thing about a meditation retreat is if you get a song stuck in your head. I mean, I was on a retreat once. And we were in, you know, every once, like every two days, you'd have like a check-in, like seven people sitting around with a teacher for, for 40 minutes to air any issues. And, some, and one, of the, one of the yogis said, I have a song stuck in my head. And the teacher said, don't tell me what it is. Don't tell me what it is. 
because, you know, you, and don't tell everybody else, because when you're on a retreat, it, you know, there's not much to displace anything that's stuck in your head. And I do not like that song, but it was very, it was very weird that on my very first retreat, that was stuck in my head from the very beginning of the retreat, even when I was unable to focus on seven consecutive breaths. And then I did, by the end of the retreat, have this completely mind-blowing experience um, of a magnitude that I never had again. And, uh, you know, it was kind of psychedelic. It had personal significance to me. Um, you know, I describe it in the book a little more than I'm comfortable describing it. It, was, it wasn't in the first draft, but my editor, I made the mistake of telling her about it. She said, oh, you should put that in the book. Um, and, uh, but I remember after, uh, in fact, this was the same teacher who told somebody, you know, don't repeat the song that's stuck in your head. Didn't say that to me, but... After the retreat, I told him about the experience, you know. I was just so proud of it. I thought maybe I'd attain nirvana or something. I mean, it was like, it was like I, what I would imagine uh, a combination of LSD and heroin is. I mean, it was, it was psychedelic, and it was like I was in the interior of my mind, and it was very blissful. Um, and uh, I described it to him, and he said, sounds nice. And he said, but don't get attached to it. And... Uh, you know, he was right. Uh, well, he's right both because, you know, from talking to a number of meditators, I get the sense that a lot of people have these peak experiences fairly early on, and they may not be easy to replicate. But the other reason he was right is that this is not what this retreat was even about. It was a Vipassana retreat, meaning that, uh, you know, roughly speaking, you could say it was about mindfulness meditation, although Vipassana and mindfulness aren't the same. Um, and you were supposed to be, you weren't supposed to be trying to get blissed out. Uh, you, were, um, you were supposed to be observing the way your mind works and observing things in general uh, in a calm and deliberate uh, fashion. But, um, you know, so I mean, what he told me was the right thing to tell people, I guess, is, is, if that's the answer to your question. I mean, uh, and you know, I have not pursued, now there are meditative, you know, and I'm not broadly conversant in all the different kinds of meditation. There are, there are meditative paths there are, that are about attaining states of bliss and so on, and that's fine. Um, I think for purposes of writing this book, I was better off just doing more straightforward observations of my mind uh, for purposes of writing a book about psychology, but I'm not, a, I'm not against bliss. And, and, you know, you do, I, I mean, I think in any daily practice, including just kind of garden variety mindfulness, you're going to you know, bliss is there to to be to be tasted every once in a while. I find, but but I've never had an experience like that one. We want to thank Bob. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.